Good afternoon. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Stand by one moment. Hello, I'm Harry Robinson, and this is the All Out Attack podcast. Right, let's get this sorted out. Oh, I'm loving the backdrop. You're much more professional than me. Well, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, right, nice, nice to see you, Harry. My guest today is Peter Blexley, one of the founding members of Scotland Yard's undercover unit in the 80s, and someone who is probably most famous for catching fake fugitives on Channel 4's hit reality show, Hunted. Hello, Chief. How are you doing? All right, thank you. More importantly, how are you doing? Also, I wanted to ask, how was your, your fundraising over the past month? Yes, it was um, it was a challenge, but I did it. Um, and um, I'm delighted to say I raised over £12,000, so that was one. Wow. No, no that's, that's spectacular. Pete spent 21 years as a detective, taking on different identities on a daily basis and building a reputation for being one of the best undercover narcotics detectives in Europe. After being forced to retire from the police, and after a lengthy stint writing books and appearing on TV, Peter is now hunting a real fugitive in Kevin Park, a man wanted a connection to two murders who's been on the run for over 16 years. Marvellous, thank you very much. And yeah, feel free to discuss Kevin Parr as much as, um, as you want. After chatting about football... I'll always go to Rangers. Yeah. My mates, for the love of the club, and, and because it's what I do. And if I don't go to football, my wife will drag me a blue wall. And chewing the fat... I got to see firsthand the overwhelming determination and dedication that Peter has for catching Kevin Park. He's been to hell and back, but now he's trying to bring about justice for the family still wading through those dark days. I hope you enjoy. I'd let, I'll, I'll just jump right into it then. I mean, obviously, you're a man who's had many identities, wore many hats, quite literally many identities. I'll let you introduce yourself. Who is Peter Blexley? Hi. Well, as you can see, I'm a bit of an old bloke. Um, I'm 61, um, but I'm, you know, I'm very enthusiastic. I love work. I love life, really. I'm determined to uh, rinse it for every ounce of enjoyment that I possibly can while I'm here. And that's been my ethos throughout my life, generally speaking. That's not to say there hasn't been very dark times, of course, but um, into every life, a little rain must fall. Um, as a kid, 17 years old, I joined the police cadets, uh, largely inspired by my mum, who got a neighbourhood cop to come round and give me a bit of a talking to and persuade me that some of the antics I was getting up to wasn't perhaps the smartest idea and that I ought to think about joining the police cadets which I did, thanks to that cop. Um, and so I did 18 months as a cadet. Then I joined the police as a PC. And in 1978, I got posted to the very mean streets of Peckham in South East London. And if I thought I'd been a bit of a Jack the Lad in Leafy Bexley Heath, well, I was a complete marshmallow compared to many of the people that I encountered in Peckham. And I grew up pretty quick. Um, yeah, stayed at Peckham until 1982, when I was fortunate enough to be selected as a detective. And then I went to the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, a very different manner from Peckham, different crime, different people, different challenges. Um, loved it there, being a detective. And then in 1985, 
achieved my ambition of becoming a Scotland Yard detective. So at the age of 25, pulled my shoulders back, puffed my chest out, and with no little pride, walked through the revolving doors of Scotland Yard for the first time. Um, and then I entered a completely different world. Well, what was it that, that drove you into, I mean, you talk about it being a completely different world, going from uh, from normal policing and, and uh, you know, in Peckham and Kensington to going into the kind of world of plainclothes detectives and, and undercover work. What was it that drove you away from the police work? Well, I, I you know, I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Peckham for good reasons and bad. Um, when I became a detective and, and went to Kensington, again, that was very different work. I enjoyed wearing a suit or a pair of jeans instead of wearing a uniform. But the next kind of natural progression was to become a Scotland Yard detective. You know, in, in those days, and largely still today, um, officers tend to pursue either promotion or specialisation. Some officers managed to straddle both, but um, I chose specialisation. I wanted to have that on my CV that I was a Scotland Yard detective. That was where the resources were. That was where the expertise mm -hmm. tended to live. Um, and when I got up there to what was then called the Central Drug Squad, so we're talking about the 1980s, Ronald Reagan is the president of the US and he's banging on about the war on drugs and his wife is running what was manifestly the most unsuccessful campaign in the history of mankind, which was the Just Say No campaign. Yeah, you know, well, of course. I don't think it was that easy. You know, the, whole, the whole world <laughs> listened to her, didn't they? And nobody's ever taken any drugs since. Um, and I thought that that was the area of crime that was going to have the money thrown at it, that was going to be very much in the spotlight because of this whole nonsense war on drugs campaign that was that was being fought it was very very much at the forefront of the media's thinking the cocaine explosion on the streets of the uk was happening the ecstasy and the rave scene was just around the corner and i chose that squad instead of the flying squad which some people have persuaded me to join now the flying squad deal with armed robberies cash in transit you know, over-the-pavement jobs, as they would call it, when a, a gang of armed robbers would leap out of a couple of stolen cars and attack security guards. Well, by the time the mid-'80s came around, I knew, because I kept my ear very close to the ground, that the proper, proper criminals were moving away from that. It was too high risk. There was a distinct likelihood that you might get shot dead by the police, because a number of armed robbers had been. Yeah. Um, and... and if they were turning away from it because they were beginning to familiarise themselves with this whole drugs-dealing malarkey. You know, armed robbers from the 70s hadn't gone anywhere near drugs, but now in the mid-80s, they're thinking, well, what is the point of running the risk of getting shot, running the risk of getting a 25-, 30-year jail term for robbing a bank? Let's go and deal drugs. It's less risky. The profits are greater. Uh, and at that time, they were absolutely right. Um, and so I, I could see around the corner. I knew what was coming and, and I wanted to go where the spotlight would be, albeit not that I was going to be in the media and in the spotlight, but in policing terms where the spotlight yeah. would be. Well, I mean, if you look at the world now as well, you know, bank robbing and um, armed robbery isn't the thing that has skyrocketed in the last few decades. It's, you know, 
drugs everywhere. I could probably walk 20 yards down the road and, and get myself some drugs. Do you know what I mean? I can't walk 20 yards up the road and, and get a bank heist together. So, no, but mainly because there's hardly any banks left on the island. Yeah. But um, yeah, there's a saying um, that you may or may not be familiar with, and, and that's that you're never more than six foot away from a rat, apparently, in London anyway, you know, because the, they live in the sewers and they're not far beneath our feet or riverbanks and the like. Well, I would say you're never more than six minutes away from a drug dealer, wherever you are in the UK. And the whole nonsense of this war on drugs is exactly that. It's a nonsense. It's a war that cannot and will not ever be won. Mm -hmm. and, and I say that through the benefit of being involved in drugs for so much of my life. Yeah, you know, for a decade, I worked undercover pretending to be a drug dealer and, and many other roles as well. Um, I foolishly got overly familiar with drugs when I left the police. Mm -hmm. Um, to my detriment, although I'm not a Puritan about it, I, I, I certainly, you know, would never advocate just say no because that's a nonsense. Um, people to change people's state of mind is is all a part of being a human being. You know, every human being changes their 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 mind, whether that be by smoking a joint, tooting a line, dropping a pill, having a cigarette having a swig of coffee to get some caffeine to change your state of mind, mm -hmm. going to the cinema to watch a movie to transport yourself to a different place, watching the telly, reading a book, listening to a podcast. We all want to change our mind. It's our, escapism, our, isn't it? It, it? it might be what, whatever you, you want to choose to call it, but it's being a part of a human being is, is changing your state of mind. Mm -hmm. People just choose to do it through different things. Um, and so taking drugs is as old as mankind itself. And this prohibitionist nonsense that we find ourselves in is, is just foolish and wrong and causes more harm than good. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could be here for hours talking about it. Well, I know, I know you yourself are a, are a bit of a, a drug reformist. And I mean, you know, Normally, I'd, I'd keep my opinions out of it, but I, I'm, I tend to kind of agree with that, especially with, um, I mean, the the criminalization of spice is a is a huge example uh, in the fact that spice has now become more deadly and now, you know, is taking apart prisons and and you know rampant throughout communities and beforehand, not that it was any good for for the human body or anything, but I you know there was a shop near near ours that would sell spice although i was kind of unknown to it being too young uh, but now and it, it was this legal high that is is largely you know non-deadly and, and a bit smackish and whatever and then you know you go into a prison and and your people are dropping dead and it all comes from this kind of prohibitionist ideology that you're talking about in terms of that things aren't pure and 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 things get into the wrong hands and, and people are taking the wrong kind of stuff if you criminalise it and make it such a bad thing, surely? Yeah, if, if everybody who takes an illegal drug, and there are millions of people in the UK that do that, uh, the overwhelming majority of them are not problematic drug users, by the way. Um, sadly, there, there is a, a minority of people whose lives implode and 
get destroyed and sadly sometimes ended by drugs. But you can say the same for alcohol, cigarettes, both of which I enjoy. Uh, please don't ever smoke, kids. It's a nonsense, smelly, expensive, antisocial, ridiculous way to shorten your life um, and empty your bank account. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoy those kind of things. And the more governments throughout the centuries have tried to drive things underground, then the greater the demand has been for them. And, and the illegal drugs industry is purely and simply like any other business. It's about supply and demand. And the demand just will not go away because people want to change their state of being. Mm -hmm. um, and the demand is huge. And 50 years of the Misuse of Drugs Act, which we've now had because it was enacted in 1971, hasn't altered anything. It's just made things worse. We've filled our prisons to breaking point, And of course, that hasn't worked. Lengthy jail sentences have not been a deterrent for people drug dealing. There are more people drug dealing now than ever, more people taking drugs now than ever. And still you get stupid, no-nothing, no idiotic politicians banging on about being tough on drugs and the war on drugs and all of that. And it's nonsense. And the likelihood is that the, the, the level of cocaine use in the Houses of Parliament, you know, is probably pretty high. It's yeah, well, popcorn yeah. and kettle black and that kind of stuff. People take drugs. I mean, please, let's not get dragged into a discussion about the hypocrisy of politicians because yeah. otherwise we'll never get a touch on anything else. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nonsense situation that we find ourselves in. And the way to take away the teenage rebelliousness out of drugs and let's face it so many young people get into drugs because it's an act of teenage rebellion it's illegal let's try and do it um that's the default position for so many millions of teenagers if for example my vision of a, of a world post drug law reform was that there was what i shall unimaginatively call a drugstore on every high street right so yeah. chemists pharmacies whatever people want to call it which is where you would go to get your pill your line your joint whatever it was that floats your boat um if as a teenager you were queuing up there on a saturday to buy your tablet to buy your grandma charlie um to buy your joints and standing in the same queue was your granddad who wanted to buy himself a nice big bifter to have a bang on while he's watching strictly right all of a sudden it ain't quite so cool to be a teenager is it and be in the same queue you know potentially buying the same drug yeah so that whole rebelliousness just goes out the window take smoking for example you know so many kids around here have been educated away from smoking when they were tiny little children in primary school mm -hmm. And that has been done very successfully. If drugs weren't this taboo, you can't talk about it kind of subject, or when parents who don't know anything about the, the about drugs or teachers that don't know anything about drugs try and educate children about it, they just say, don't do them, they're all dangerous and you're all going to die, which, of course, is complete bollocks. And so those kind of kind of scare them, hair them kind of lines just don't work with well, it's never young people. Yeah. 
but you've got to tell them the truth. And the truth is, yes, if you become a, an addicted, problematic drug user, and heroin and crack is your drugs of originally choice, but then necessity, yeah, okay, you, you, you quite probably will shorten your life. But if what you want to do is have a joint so that you can eat four boxes of Maltesers and understand modern jazz, well, that's <laughs> probably not going to kill you. You might put on a pound or two. Um, likewise, if you go to a rave, a concert, a festival, and you drop a couple of E's, yes, there's a risk that you will take one from a contaminated batch and you'll die. Yes, there's a risk that you'll get dehydrated and need hospitalisation um, and, and those kind of associated risks. But in all likelihood, the overwhelming majority of those people who guzzle a pill at a festival are going to be fine. Mm -hmm. um, they do it anyway. Yeah, and then they'll do it anyway. Yeah, of course. You know, and and, and the first eight, ten, yes, we'll have people in there that have, that are not very well on it, but ten thousand people won't die. Um, you know, so that we need to tell the truth. We've we've got lunatic politicians who are rampant hypocrites, as you alluded to. They've taken drugs, if not continue to take drugs, and yet they want to preach on high about locking people up and being tough on it and all that kind of stuff. And it's just been proven in this country for 50 years at least and around the world. It simply doesn't work. What you need is regulation of the industry, legalisation and regulation of the industry, not piecemeal, not bit by bit, but across the board. Because whosoever is buying drugs tonight, wheresoever they are in the country, will buy them from criminals. Mm -hmm. Right now, this is a major, major industry that, that is left entirely in the hands of criminals. Mm. Would you let would you let criminals run the railways? Yeah, I know there's a joke there, yeah, about how they currently do and all that kind of stuff, right? But but I'm being serious here. Would you let criminals run the NHS? Ditto, same gag, I know, right? But you wouldn't. And yet we let unscrupulous criminals whose only interest is to get you buying more and more of their product. Mm -hmm. why, why do we let criminals run this, this industry? But, it's yeah. absolute lunacy. Well, it and, needs and to be legalised and, and regulated. I mean, this is coming from a man as well who, you know, obviously not your personal money, but you've, you've bought millions and millions of pounds worth of drugs in your in your um uh detective career and your undercover career it shows the amount of money that's coming into that industry and you, you look at any you look at the marijuana industry in in like california say it's stupid amounts of money from something that that hasn't killed anyone over there hasn't you know ruined anyone's life over there you know it, it's well, but coming uh, coming on to that actually, because it's something I want to ask. Obviously, you have spent time going undercover and buying drugs, and you know you you ha have your way of, of weighing up drugs. You you have to know your stuff, so you come across as a as a successful you know criminal. You you uh, uh, to play the ruse. Um, do you kind of remember your early undercover cases where you really started to build up those skills? Of, of understanding the drug world and, and blending in? 
yeah, the, the, the easiest lie to tell is one that's close to the truth. Mm -hmm. um, now, so when I went undercover, the character that I portrayed was always close to who I actually am. And I could only ever portray being an oik from South London. Um, you know, I couldn't suddenly claim to be an expert in fine art because I was privately educated, you know, at a fee-paying school. Um, I couldn't have carried that off. So yeah. I stuck close to what I what I was. I used to, when we weren't actually discussing business with the criminals, I used to stick to talking about the three Fs. Um, and if you're part of my language, that was fighting, fucking and football because I had some experience of all those. <laughs> um, so, you know, stick to the, the lie that's closest to the truth. And being from South London, having been in the cops for seven years by the time I got to Scotland Yard, and also um, socialising with my mates, not police officers, um, at the weekends and stuff, it's fair to say that I was pretty familiar with drugs. Um, I knew my way around a line of Charlie and a joint and a pill and all of that through policing and and being around my friends. Some Were you a drug user yourself or was it just your friends kind of in that circle? Oh, I'd be telling you a lie if I said I'd never smoked a joint when I was in the cops or I'd you know, <laughs> never got wrapped around a line of Charlie. But not a lot, unfortunately, yeah. and, and to my kind of shame and stupidity, I got overly familiar with drugs after I'd left the police because I got medically retired when I was 40. Mm -hmm. And um, and I suppose when I went out partying, I was trying to replicate the buzz that working undercover had given me that was unfortunately taken away from me. Um, so, yeah, I got a bit too familiar with gear then, but as soon as my wife got wind of it, you know, she grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, metaphorically speaking, and marched me to the edge of the precipice and said, either you get your shit together or um, you'll be losing your home, your wife and your children. So mm -hmm. that was a pretty um, clear decision that I had to make. And I haven't touched a drug in uh, 17, 18 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And coincidentally, they've been the best 18 years of my life. And, um, well, it is no coincidence as it happens. You know, that's one is directly uh, attributable to the other. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I've been around drugs all my life, working undercover and buying tens of millions and millions of pounds worth of it, taking it, you know, pretending to be a dealer, all that sort of stuff. Um, and my advice would be this, because I'm not a Puritan and I'm not going to ever say to anybody, don't take drugs, that's your choice. Um, you will, of course, be funding criminals because you'll, you'll only be able to buy it from criminals at the moment. So I'd ask you to think about that. But if you do take a bit of gear, this would be my advice. When you're in company, and I hope that you're taking drugs in company and not alone, once again, I'm not condoning it, but if you're taking gear in your own own, then I think you're really on a very slippery slope. But if you're in company, and you're having a joint or you're having a line or this, that, and the other, get your phone out, right? Get your mobile phone out. And when you are all sitting there thinking that you are the most interesting person in the room, the brightest person in the room, the one that understands modern jazz and all that kind of stuff, just hit voice notes and record yourself, right? And listen to you and your pal. The following morning, 
or the day after, depending on how much of a bender you've been on. But whenever you've got your head half straight, right, and you're sober and you're clear of thought, go back into your phone and replay that voice note that you recorded. And I hope you've let it run for an hour or two. Okay? And then listen to it. And listen to the complete and utter bollocks that you've been talking. Listen to what an interminable bore you actually are. And then ask yourself a question about how interesting you are and all that kind of stuff when you're on a bit of gear. I'd, I'd just ask you to do that and draw your own conclusions about how you think you might have lit the room up. <laughs> I would say chances are you have probably, in the cold light of day, you will think, I sound like such a twat. Um, and would you ever you have might to, just reassess. Would you ever have to, um, in order to remain undercover, would you ever have to kind of do do drugs or, or that kind of stuff uh, to blend Yeah, 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 often. It would be a deal breaker. Sometimes it would be a deal breaker because the drug dealers would have it in their heads that, well... If this bloke doesn't take drugs, then he must be an undercover cop because undercover cops don't take drugs. Right? Well, mm. I debunked that myth. But <laughs> when you are when you are negotiating with some very tasty people and these business negotiations are for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds worth of drugs, you don't want to be off your nut. You really, really do not want to have your thinking impaired by alcohol or drugs. You want to be crystal clear. Mm -hmm. So I would steer away from it at every single possible opportunity. But there's only so many times you could say to someone, oh, I've got a heart condition, so I don't take it. I mean, I never used that line, but I knew some cops that did, right? Yeah. You know, or um, actually, I've got the park, the car parked around the corner. And I hate driving when I'm stoned because I get really paranoid and all that kind of stuff. You know, those kind of excuses can only be used for, for so long. <laughs> what I would tend to do, because I was proficient at it, say, for example, it was going to be a deal breaker. If I didn't have a bang on this joint, the negotiations weren't going to go any further. So what I would do is I would say to the geezer who's producing the bit of puff and the skins, I'd go, go on, give me the papers. And I'd grab the papers off him. And I would put together a three skin, a five skin, a seven skin. I could build a joint like my arm. Yeah. Right? Okay. And then what I would do is if I'm, so if I'm building the joint, mm -hmm. I will backload it. So I won't put any dope towards the front of the joint. So I'll give it like a centimeter with no dope in it, just tobacco towards the front. And I'll backload the joint. So then when I've built it, I go, right, I've built it. I'm going to spark it, get the light up, boom, spark it up, have a couple of bangs on that, make it look like I'm inhaling, you know, all the dope and I'm having a, you know, seeing what it's doing to me and all that kind of going, boom, and then pass it on. But the fact of the matter is, because I've backloaded it, there's been no dope towards the front. And any residual burning of gear that might have happened between the front of the joint and the roach, which has gone in my gob, is pretty negligible. 
Yeah. So then I just slowly watch them all get stoned because I know it's backloaded and I've had a bang on it and I'm like, fine. Is it easier so to blend that, Sorry, is it easier to blend in when everyone else is stoned around you? No, you know, I, I didn't sit in crack houses full of mangled people. <laughs> I was a businessman, right? You know, and these were business deals. But sometimes some of the people that I was negotiating with used to break the rule. And the rule is never get high on what you supply. But some people broke that. You know, some of the people that I dealt with were able to deal in multi-kilos, even though they were problematic drug users who were psychotic and very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. But you would have to adopt your tactics and the language that you used and the way you spoke to people and your body language according to what company you were in and what, you know, what firm you were dealing with. It always varied. The, the, the rules were never the same. You could never plant your goalposts in the same position yeah. between one job and another. You had to be flexible and think on your feet. Likewise, if, if, if we were buying cocaine and somebody would pull out, you know, an eight ball, for example, and say, right, come on, this is the gear we're going to buy. You know, I want you to have a bang on it now and see what it's like. Well, I got very adept at pulling out a credit card or in those days, even a phone card. That's history lesson for that's you that's kids. There used to be car phones, public phones that you put a card into, right? Um, and and I would get the gear and I'd rack it up, I'd chop it up. And I was very, very adept. I'd say, and what's your name? And he'd go, Paul. And I would rack up a big P, a big letter P, right? I could put bends in my lines, you know what I mean? I was yeah. that proficient at it. And then I'd hand it to him and say, there you go. And they'd laugh because suddenly they've got their initial snort. So instead of having a straight line, they're going up and around. And they all thought that was good fun. And, of course, it showed huge familiarity with gear. Yes. You know, for me, you go, well, what's your name? Steve. All right, a bit more chat. I've got to do a curvy S. So I've got to chop all the gear into a curvy S. You go, there you go, Steve. There's a nice big S for you. And they'd like all that. And those were just the little touches that made people less paranoid thinking about, you know, well, I've only known this bloke for a day, a week, a month. Um, you know, is he connected to the old bill or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it was always about bringing the paranoia down, showing how familiar you were with gear. And I knew gear inside out is why I was the country's leading authority, if not the continent's leading authority as an undercover cop on, on drugs. Mm. You know, I could wash up your cocaine and make crack out of it and all that kind of stuff with my eyes shut. Yeah. Um, because like, like any line of business you go into, if you're in business, you've got to know your business or else you're going to, you're going to be caught short. God, yeah. You, you were talking about being flexible and obviously you were also saying beforehand about having to kind of be this oiky cockney and, and, and it's easier to stay closer to your truth. Uh, was there ever any undercover jobs where you had to really take on quite a strange role or, or that kind of side? Or was it always the... Stick to what you know. Stick to what you know. Go back to what I said earlier. You know, the easiest light to tell is the one that's closest to the truth. So I would never pretend to be anything that I really was. You know, that I, that was too much of a stretch. Yeah. You, you you've got to be yourself. You got to remember that sometimes I'm I'm dealing with psychotic people who have got a nine mil shoved down the back of their trousers. You know. So been, who's it, the most psychotic? Not, to, who's the most psychotic you've had to deal with then? Whilst, whilst well, you know, put it this way, there, there was a lot of people that were extremely 
dangerous. And if people want to read all about it, then my autobiography, The Gangbuster, is, is still out there on Amazon. Doesn't cost a fortune. Written 20 years ago, but still sells because people uh, enjoy it. And I'm very proud of it. It is a, a boy's own tale of daring do and, and all of that. And all the stories are in there at considerable length. Yeah, I'll, I'll include the link to it at the bottom as well. Thank you. Um, how, how's, whilst you were undercover, I mean, is there this constant that you were talking about people with, with nine millimeters took down their trousers, you know, trying to edge you out whether you're a cop or not? Is there this constant fear of death then, or, or do you have a way of kind of keeping calm and collected? No, there wasn't a constant fear of death, but there was a constant air of menace. Mm-hmm. amongst all of the people that I, I dealt with and, and, and all the negotiations that I dealt with, whether it be in a social housing estate with chronic social deprivation, mm-hmm. and I'm on the fifth or sixth floor in a flat, which is double, treble, quadruple bolted, um, and there is simply no way, no way of getting out of there in a hurry, and I'm with very dangerous people that are armed, or at the other end of the scale, I'm in a luxurious hotel, sitting at the bar, drinking whiskey at £25 a pop. Mm. Um, there was always an air of, of, of menace. There was always a level of danger. Um, and, but you just dealt with it. You know, you just learnt to deal with it and, and not, have the fear cripple you so that the words don't tumble out of your mouth because that's not a very good situation to be in. Yeah, um, yeah there, were, there were untold scary uh, moments. Did you ever but, have any... Oh, apologies, what were you going to say? No, but I, I was fit and fearless. I look back on it sometimes and, and think, was that really me? But yeah, it was because I, I, I feared no man and... I knew I had a propensity for lying. I knew I was pretty good at it. So yeah. it would have been a waste of my talents not to pursue that line of work as, as actively as I did. It, obviously, I mean, you know, it, you're, you're completely clear-minded now and, and it was being professional at your job and it very much was a job. But are there any kind of cases that maybe stick out in terms of have weighed on your mind since being undercover? I mean, I know that I remember in the podcast, it's mentioned about um, James Bagry and, and that, that stuck in my mind as something that sounded quite gruesome and, and, and something that was, you know, so long winded and grueling. I wasn't sure if there was any kind of case that maybe has weighed on your mind since your, your undercover days. Well, the, the, the case that had the most impact upon me was Operation Zulu Cricket, which was when myself and a, an undercover operative from what was then Her Majesty's Customs and Excise, um, when me and this undercover uh, operator from the customs negotiated with a very, very serious firm to buy what was then the largest seizure of heroin ever made inside the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and this lot were clearly linked to terrorism, so much so that they were going to take payment in weaponry other than cash if we could supply all the arms that they wanted. Um, And when that operation 
was successfully concluded by the drugs being delivered to me in a hotel at Gatwick Airport. The bad guys being arrested, so was I, you know, for effect, slammed to the ground, handcuffed by arms police and all of that. Um, so it was, a, at that stage, a very successful operation. When they were banged up, they realised that I must have been an undercover cop. So they worked on the theory that if they killed me, they killed the evidence. And to an extent, they were right. And then mysteriously, and for some reason, which remains unbeknown to me, the team that were doing that case, because I was I was a hired hand, you know, I went and worked for teams around the country, around Europe and, and further afield. And the team that had led that investigation, uh, one of the officers on that team had to compile a report for the deputy commissioner because there were multiple agencies involved in this case. The FBI, who discovered the plot to murder me, um, the DEA, the Drugs Enforcement Agency, the Irish police, the Garda Shikana, customs, police, police forces from around the world. Uh, it was a complicated case and there was a lot of infighting between those organisations. So the deputy commissioner asked one of the officers on the investigating team to draw up a report, which he did, that ran for some eight pages. Uh, but in that report, he didn't put my undercover number, which is allocated to you by the undercover unit at the yard. For some reason, he put my real and unusual name in there. There's only about 14 Blexes in the UK, and I've fathered most of them. Yeah. Um, no, it's a joke, only three. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, and then not only did my name repeatedly feature in that report, but it was then printed off, taken out of a police station, in the back of an unmarked car. He went shopping on his way home from work, shopping, and guess what? Yeah, the car got broken into, and that report got stolen. So once the existing plot to murder me was discovered, and then this report is now potentially out there in the hands of the criminals, it would have been very easy to find me and assassinate me. So I was very hurriedly taken away from my home, my life, my identity, and parachuted into witness protection. And then began the uh, most miserable two-year period of my life, which culminated in a catastrophic mental health breakdown, um, being admitted into a lock-in psychiatric ward, and it signalled the beginning of the end of my police career. So that case had an impact on me like no other. And it impacted on my life. It still impacts on my life today because my police career was 20 years instead of 30 years. You know, and at the age of 40, I found myself on the scrap heap of life, no education to fall back on, no trade, no apprenticeship, no calling, nothing like that, and battling to, to regain my mental health. So it's fair to say that that case had quite a dramatic effect upon my life. Well, I want to touch on on the witness protection thing, um, but you, the, you, regarding the the police car, well, obviously the things getting printed off, and then the, the police car going to the shops, and then the police car getting broken into. That's a long, lot of series of events that shouldn't have happened at all. Is there any part of you that kind of thinks that that something smells a bit, and, and or was it just a bit of negligence? Do you think? Yeah. Yes, of course. I spent two years in the witness protection program, conspiracy theorising as to how the frigging hell did I find myself in this situation? Mm -hmm. What went wrong? What was crooked? What was conspiracy? You know, I spent two years worrying about it. That was a major part of my catastrophic mental health breakdown. 
let alone the fact that I had to check under the car every morning to make sure some bastard hadn't put a bomb there, let alone the fact that I lived in continual fear of an assassin's bullet in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those uh-huh. matters played heavily on my mind and and the, the where I played a, a part in my own downfall was that I drank too much and I smoked too much, which was hardly kind of surprising because I didn't live in a home, I lived in a hideout. And I'd sacrificed everything that I that, that was so important to me. So yeah, I, I spoke to, a, a, a while back. One of one of my earlier podcast guests were um, Stephen Murphy and Javier Pena, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, but they were the two people that the two uh, American DEA agents that hunted down Pablo Escobar. And Pablo Escobar had an 100 grand bounty on both of their heads, and they talked about how you kind of live in this constant paranoia and fear for your family and, and all this. How did this, you know, uh, warrant for an assassination on your head affect you, especially whilst you're in a in a place that you're kind of without an identity almost? Well, that was it. The drinking, the smoking and the conspiracy theorising. Mm-hmm. 24-7. And, and that manifested itself in, in my every thought pattern becoming severely affected um, and, and to the point where I nearly killed a mate of mine in a pub one day, and then I realised what a danger I was becoming to other people. I, I realised for some time that I was, you know, not well, but I was a professional liar, so I was very good at disguising it. Uh, but then at that stage, I realised I was becoming a danger to other people, uh, not only myself. Um, and that was the afternoon that I got hospitalised. So, yeah. It was, and it was, yourself it was, into the hospital? No, I, I after what had happened was I was in, I decided to, to hell with all this witness protection and all that stuff, and I went back home to my local boozer. Um, and I was in there having a drink, of course, drinking too much. Uh, a mate of mine was sitting on a stall in the, at the corner of the bar. Somebody pulled me aside, just told me some tittle-tattle about him, which in normal circumstances, I would have absolutely laughed in the face of it and just yeah. ignored it. Um, but in my altered thinking, it became a big thing. All of a sudden, I'd been drinking, and at one point, I just put my pint down on the bar, walked over and clumped him, um, knocked him clean off the bar stall. As he was sprawled out on the floor, I then picked up the bar stool, raised it above my head, and I was going to bring it down and crush his head like a watermelon. And as I was pulling it down, fortunately, somebody shouted very loudly, um, very closely to my ear. They just shouted out, Blex. And it was that split second where I was... I, I had clarity of thought. It was a lucid moment. It was a lucid split second. And the barstool was probably 18 inches away from crushing his head. And that split second lucid moment made me just toss the barstool and stop, uh, for which I remain eternally grateful because I would have done him serious, serious harm. And as I tossed the barstool, I just, you know, I held on to that lucid moment as I went and sat down and just said, this is, you know, this is just has to stop. Um, because I'm now so severely ill. I mean, the fact that I've lived in a very, very tough world doesn't mean that I was a tough person with a propensity for violence. On the contrary, 
the overwhelming majority of any fighting I've ever got involved in, I was gloved up and in a ring. Um, you know, that's where people should fight. Yeah. Um, and I realised because of my boxing capabilities, you know, I'd, I'd seen how swiftly I knocked my pal off the barstool and nearly yeah. killed him. I was a, a danger to others. So sat down, um, sort of head in hands. Um, you know, I said, I'm in severe need of help. Everybody in the pub was terrified of me at that stage, and but they got hold of a really good mate of mine. Um, and he came and picked me up and took me straight to hospital. Um, and uh, and there I stayed for the next three and a half weeks. You feel obviously, I mean, that's that's a you talk about the lucid moment. That was a moment where someone had mentioned your real name in a period where you really, you know, were living without one or with, with a, a name that wasn't your own. Do you feel the kind of multiple identities that you had to live by every day had played a, a massive part on your mental health? On any given day, I'd be three different people before about 11 o'clock. So I'm in the hideout, I'm in witness protection. I come downstairs and the post would be on the mat. So that's the first reminder of the name that I'm living in, in this hideout in my witness protection identity. I then have a shower, go out to the car, the van, whatever it was I was driving, check underneath it, do me anti-surveillance techniques, make sure I'm not being followed, then drive to work. And for that hour, when I drove to work, I could be myself, put yeah. the radio on, listen to whatever station I wanted to, and be me. Mm -hmm. Because then by the time I got to work, bizarrely... So you were um, working throughout the witness protection period sorry you were working throughout the witness protection period then yeah 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 of, of course yeah the, the police still wanted their pound of flesh out of me and so i then get to work and one of the bosses would go blex got another undercover job coming you're the man for it so i'd go off and do that so by the time 11 o'clock in the morning came around i've been three different people already in one day um so it's not surprising that that all took its toll on me and in fact, the uh, wonderful psychiatrist who played such a major role in getting me well again um, said, if ever you are going to get well and stay well, you have to be Peter Blexley again, just Peter Blexley. All these multiple identities that you've adopted for years have really taken a severe toll and you must revert back to, to being yourself. Well, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic redemption story in the fact that I'm sat here, you know, it, it, with a huge amount of respect for you and, and in awe of, of your stories to the point where I've not even looked at the time for the first part. Um, yeah, and to, and to think that you were in such a, a dark point in your life and you were able to kind of clamber your way out of it. I, I think it's, it's so, it's a testament to strength, surely. It's, it's more a testimony to the brilliance of the nurses and doctors of the NHS. Mm -hmm. um, to them goes the credit. And of course, to the absolute genius of the scientists that invented the drugs that have helped me mm -hmm. over the years. Um, I mean, I still take a tiny maintenance dose of an antipsychotic medication 20 odd years um, after first becoming ill. 
And there's no stigma to that. I don't have a problem with that. I talk about it publicly and here we are um, because it's what keeps me well. Um, I'm also, a, a, I think, a, a powerful voice whenever I get the opportunity for those suffering from mental health issues. We all have mental health. Sometimes it's robust. Other times it's not so. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've done as much as I can, I think, to take away the stigma about talking about mental health. We lose too many people far too young because they take their own lives. Too many lives are destroyed because people simply feel like they can't talk about mental health issues because there is a stigma, yeah. um, some people feel. Well, it's all nonsense, and I'm glad to see that so many barriers are being knocked down and bridges being built now well, so that, that people feel... Quite, quite rapidly. I feel that stigma is getting destroyed quite rapidly considering if you were to talk about anyone about mental health during, I mean, not to sound, you know, blunt, but in your era of when you were policing, you know, people, mental health wasn't a thing really. People shook it off. It's No, it wasn't. In fact, in fact some, um, one commissioner of the police went down to my mum's house when I was in the grip of this, serious serious catastrophic mental health breakdown and had the temerity to walk into my mum's house and say to her that I needed a kick up the arse I mean that's just how we were in the dark ages 20 odd years ago um, another police officer went into my local pub where the man who was best man at my wedding and is still my great mate used to work and, and said to my mate, Blex is just putting it on, isn't he? He's trying to work his ticket. Um, you know, such was the ignorance, the prejudice, the lack of knowledge um, amongst police officers back in those dark times. Yeah, I'm glad people talk about it now. I'm glad there are so many prominent people that, that get far more airtime and column inches than I do to talk about it. Well, I mean, but whenever I get the chance, you know, and, and, and I always say this to anybody having their struggles. We have them. There, there is no shame. But I would urge that, number one, you talk. Please, please just talk to someone. It really, really does help. And talking of help, get the help you need, the qualified medical help that you need i'm not qualified in any way shape or form i'm not a medical person i speak here purely from my own experiences so talk get the help and if you get the right meds take them don't think i felt fine for three months i don't need them anymore take them listen to the medical people they're very clever um unlike me they paid attention at school and it shows um so yeah and 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 feel no no stigma it, it happens to so many of us I, I think that's such a poignant point to to end that that section uh, i really want to talk about kevin paul if you still have the time I, I don't want to take up too much of your time do you need a break at all or or do you want to just plow on it's completely up to you do i need a break no would i like a break yes please i'd love to get a coffee as well do you want to take five then and and we'll come back. <laughs> Let's do that. Hi there, it's Harry, the lesser interesting one of the podcast that you're watching right now. 
And I'm here to remind you, whilst me and Peter getting a coffee, that you should 100% watch or listen to the other episodes of the All Out Attack podcast. Um, There's about 11 others. Have a look. Right, back to part two. We'll talk about Kevin Paul then. Uh, Yeah. Would you rather give the context to Kevin Paul or... Uh, Yeah, I mean, no one knows the story better. Yeah, exactly. You, You... Who is Kevin Paul then? In the same way I ask you who's Peter Black to me, who is Kevin Paul? Kevin Paul is a scouser, albeit he comes from the soft southern side of the city, should I say. Um, you know, he came from a very nice semi-detached suburban part of Liverpool. Yeah, he didn't here. come from the tough side of the streets at all. Um, and uh, he is wanted for two separate murders he's not been convicted of them but he's on the national crime agency's most wanted list and they are two horrific ghastly murders the first was the shooting dead of a 16 year old boy liam kelly i'll just hold up one of my flyers if i may and you can see liam's picture there liam was a kid a boy 16 denied the opportunity to to grow, to mature, to enter manhood, to find a life partner, to have a family, to provide for them. Okay, he wasn't a model student. Nobody's described him to me in that way. But he was denied all of those things because in the early hours of the 19th of June, 2004, he was blasted with a shotgun and he died of uh, of the injuries. The second murder was the shooting dead of 22-year-old mother of three young children, Lucy Hargreaves, who also features on my flyers and posted, posters. Lucy had yeah three young kids, um, and she was also blasted to death with a shotgun, and then her body and her home were set alight. There's a lot more to tell about those two ghastly crimes, of course, um, and all the background to them, and how Kevin Powell came to be wanted for both of those crimes. But I started hunting Paul in April, 2019. This was after I'd left a TV show that I used to be involved in called Hunted. I'd done six series of that, four series of the main show, two celebrity versions, and I'd basically come to the end of the road. We caught all the fugitives in the last series that I was in, and we were never gonna top that. And the time was right for me to move on. I wanted to do another book, My publisher said, well, if you find the right subject material, go for it. And I decided that instead of writing about unsolved murders, which my previous two had been about, um, I thought I would combine my experience, my skill set, the network of people that I've built up over the years, my contacts, and what I'm best known for, gather all those together, tweak it a little bit, and instead of hunting, hunting pretend fugitives for television entertainment, hunt a real one. And they really do not come much more wanted than six foot five, broadly built Kevin Powell. It's dominated my life, my hunt for Powell, for the last two years and a bit. Um, And it is something that I will simply never give up until one of two things happen. And that is, of course, obviously, Kevin Powell gets captured, or two, I gasp my last breath. It's as simple as that. They're the only two things that are going to stop me hunting Kevin Powell. There is a school of thought, and it's something you mentioned quite heavily on the, the Manhunt podcast, 
and it's something that you quite openly disagree with. There's a school of thought that, that Kevin Paul is dead, is fish food, he was chopped up and thrown in the Mediterranean, or he was lobbed in the Mersey and, and all this kind of stuff. What, what's your, your take on that school of thought? Well, I'm pleased to say that after two years, we have put that urban myth to bed, by and large, because the word on the street from Liverpool is not what it used to be, which, as you quite rightly say, was he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. That ain't the talk on the street anymore now. The talk on the street is he's there or he's there or I've heard he was there. We've turned that round. It's taken me two years of continual slog to do that, but I'm glad that that's where we're at. You mentioned the podcast and I would ask any of your uh, followers to please have a listen to our BBC podcast, which is called Manhunt, Finding Kevin Powell. It's won an award. It's been downloaded over three million times and was the BBC's most popular true crime podcast of last year. Um, it's a piece of work that we're all very proud of. And I'm very glad to say that the BBC have uh, found some money to ensure that our podcast will return. And there are hundreds of thousands of people that want it to return, and it will. Um, it's just at the moment, I cannot put all the wealth of information that I've got into the public domain right now because that will only benefit Parle and his cronies. Mm -hmm. So until really I can get on planes, trains and automobiles like I want to, we can't bring it back yet, but we will. My, my great friend and podcast editor, Mark Sandell, we're both desperate to get it back. We know there is such a huge public appetite for it to return, but we can't do that at the moment. Next week, next week, I'm back in Liverpool. I've got four days up in Liverpool next week. Once again, raising awareness, spreading the word, liaising with the media, checking in with sources, doing all of that. Um, and we will, we will be back and he will be found. Only this week, three days ago, somebody contacted me and said they've just had an encounter with a man they are utterly convinced is Kevin Powell. So the inve my investigation is very much ongoing, but as you might see from behind me, I've renamed it the people's hunt for Kevin Powell because so many people, literally thousands of people are helping me in the hunt for him. If anybody wants some of these flyers, they're A5 flyers, I'll put them in the post to you or I'll send electronic versions. I've also got A4 posters, which are very similar. Mm -hmm. I'll happily put some of those in the post to you and again, send you the electronic versions. This is a people's movement, the people's hunt. People are so desperate to find him because they are so appalled by the crimes that he is wanted for. And they, like me, want to see him in a court of law answering the allegations that are made against him. You know, that's the natural kind of symmetry of things. That's how life should be, mm -hmm. because this hunt for him is really about truth over lies, right over wrong, and him answering the allegations. Well, I think there's a stark, stark detail that, that jumps out with me. 
I mean, gr- growing up, you know, in the area around Liverpool, uh, you know, the the kind of don't grasp mentality is is so unbelievably prominent. And I mean, you'll being as someone who's worked in law enforcement, you'll know about the don't grasp mentality, and and especially going around Liverpool and asking people to tell you about Kevin Paul. But there is one thing that jumps out is the fact that these crimes were so so ghastly and so abhorrent. I mean, you know, the the, the setting fire of, of Lucy Hargreaves' house whilst her kids are in it and, and all this and, and her being an innocent woman is kind of breaking that kind of wall of not wanting to cooperate with with any sort of enforcement. Do you do you see it that way as well? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I've I've I've, I've been to Liverpool many, many times over the years, you know, watching QPR. Uh, my eldest son, who's 33, went to university at John Moore's University in Liverpool. Um, so I've been to that great city many times. But in the last two years, apart from during lockdown, I've also been to Liverpool more than I've ever been there before. I've spent weeks and weeks in my budget hotel down there. Um and you, you've nailed it. Yeah, that whole kind of code that you grow up with. You don't talk to the establishment. Nobody grasses. I get it. I understand that. And I've experienced it elsewhere. But in Liverpool, it is particularly strong. But Lucy has been described to me by anybody that knew her as being as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. And consequently... Her, her brutal and utterly unnecessary murder crossed the line. And I think that has been a very powerful player in making as many people come on board as they have mm-hmm. to try and help and continue to help. Uh, and for that, of course, I am truly grateful. And next week, when I'm in Liverpool, I will be putting up my posters here, there, and everywhere. Let me just show you something, which I've only just got together this morning. Okay, bear with me. Right. Today, I went to my friendly local printers um, who do all this kind of stuff for me. And I collected 50 of these. Now, these are my posters, my A4 posters. But if you look carefully, you'll see they've been laminated, Mm -hmm. right? Or as the printer calls them, um, encased. And there's holes in the top and at the bottom. I hope you can see those there. And of course, I am going equipped with 50 of those, 100 of the paper versions of that, 500 flyers. But for these laminated posters, I have a huge selection of cable ties because I am in the spirit of keeping the awareness going and irritating those who would harbour and fund Kevin Powell, because believe it or not, there are some people that don't want him caught. Mm -hmm. Those those posters are going to be attached to lampposts, railings, gates, and all of that far and across that wonderful city. And yes, I know some people will come out and take them down. They'll need a pair of pliers. Um, And, you know, I know that will happen. But of course, every person that does that 
it's again getting in their head that I've not gone away. I'm not going away. I'm not giving up. And the hunt is very, very much on. Yes, I can't get on planes and fly to places that I want to. But one day that will happen. Mm-hmm. And, of course, one day he will be in handcuffs. Yeah. And, and that will, and so will start the process that hopefully will end up with him in a court of law, having to answer those allegations. So, yeah, I've got all my kit ready today. You know, I've been out, bought the cable ties, been to the printers, all that kind of stuff. And I'm very, very excited about getting back into that brilliant city, which I absolutely adore. You know, and I love the people. I truly do. I find that Scousers, you know, to to know them is to love them, generally speaking. If, if, If you make a friend of a Scouser, you've got a friend for life. Um, and 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 they are some terrific people. Of course, I've had unpleasantness and I've been trolled and people have wasted my time, tried to drain me of my money, my emotions, my time and, and, and all of that. I get that. But, you know, if you're going to be a gobby South Londoner, putting yourself up front as publicly as I do, making a BBC podcast about it, you know, getting in the media frequently... Um, and if I might say, writing a book about my hunt for Kevin Powell, this is yep. Manhunt, my latest book, published towards the end of last year, still very relevant, very, very different from our podcast. This is a very different vehicle from the podcast. Same topic, but this is very much my personal journey through the hunt. Whereas if anybody listens to the BBC podcast, you'll find that it has a lot of, of, of other stuff and, of course, pays great um respects to Liam and Lucy as does of course the book but the book's a very different thing and I'm pleased to say that many thousands of people have enjoyed both because they are so clearly distinctly different um that by the way my manhunt book is only four quid on Amazon today when I checked earlier so almost for the price of a magazine or less than the price of a pint as you'll pay down here um, you, you can get a book and people have said some very, very uh, nice things about it. Well, I mean, uh, I, I would implore people to, to buy the book. I, I, it's you, Obviously, you, you, you've released the book, you've done the podcast. I think as well as you doing the actual investigative work and, and you know, coming agonisingly close to, to, to finding Paul and getting all this information for him, I think one of the main effects of all of your work is the huge amount of publicity you've put on Paul's name and the fact that you know, before uh, hearing of of, of your uh, case for Paul, I'd never heard of Kevin Paul, and I'm from you know round about the area, and, and I, I would argue that nearly all people that I know, uh, you know, from the Liverpool area, hadn't heard of Paul. Uh, how obviously, obviously, you called it the People's Hunt now. At the start of your hunt, he could have been anywhere in the world. How? much would you argue that his world has shrunk since you've started the investigation? I sincerely hope it does. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it has. I, 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 you, you make me kind of chuckle saying that you've never heard of him. That just encapsulates everything that, that we've done in the last couple of years. On the 29th of April, 2019, when I launched my hunt, um, I did that at a press conference in London. I wanted the press conference to be in Liverpool out of respect to Liam, Lucy, that great city and its people. But sadly, 
um, some of the big hitting journalists wouldn't make the journey up there um, and would only come if it was held in Liverpool, in London. I was really irritated by that, but so hence we had to do it. But the minute that was over and I'd done a radio interview, me and Mark Sandell were on the train to Liverpool and we dumped our bags in the hotel, um, said to the receptionist, you know, where's the nearest pub? And, and so by now it's kind of like half past nine on a very long day, but we're in the pub, lovely boozer. And I said to the governor, do you mind if I hand out some flyers? And he said, no, what's it all about? You know, what are you doing? And I kid you not, people in the pub, when we were handing out the flyers, universally went, Kevin who? Never heard of him. Two years down the line, with over three million downloads, thousands of copies of that book, and all the other associated publicity, Kevin Powell's name is far, far better known than it was two years ago. So that's a little win for me. Every person that hears about Kevin Powell that wasn't previously aware of him is a little victory for me and goes some way towards shrinking the world for him, which is exactly what I'm trying to do. I want to squeeze the planet so tightly that at some point, is six foot five nut pops up and law enforcement go bang and slap the handcuffs on. You know, that's yeah. the hope. That's why I'm doing it. Why am I doing it? Of course, I'm doing it for Liam and Lucy because this is not about me. And in a strange kind of way, it's not really about Kevin Powell. Mm -hmm. It's about Liam and Lucy yeah. and trying to get him in front of a court of law. Because they've had... Uh, 16 and 15 years respectively or the families have with no answers no justice in you know well other, other people were convicted in connection with Liam's murder mm -hmm. um that's quite a long story which you're all very welcome to read about in the book um but the man who pulled the trigger a court was told was Kevin Powell mm -hmm. and he has not been in court yet well so, and, and no one was was convicted on, I mean, people were actually acquitted in regards to Lucy's murder. Yes, two two men stood trial for Lucy's murder, uh, Tony Downs and Kirk Bradley. Um, Tony Downs and I have exchanged letters. Um, he's in prison for other offences. Um, yeah, the the letter I've I've repeated the letter in the book. It's um, it's yes, interesting yeah. conversation that he and I had via letter. Um, yeah, it's 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 a long and it's a quite complex story, which I tell I hope in in a very straightforward manner. But yeah, no no justice, no one ever convicted in connection with Lucy's murder, and that is an absolute outrage. Because as police officers have said from Merseyside Police, throughout the years, her murder is one of, if not the most gruesome and ghastly murder ever in the history of Merseyside Police. Well, and it was the first crime that Merseyside Police had ever put a, a reward for any information on as well. That's how, how much it really rocked the city. At the, I mean, bearing in mind as well, I was four when, when Lucy Hargreaves was murdered, not trying to, you know, make you feel bad in terms of age-wise. Uh... <laughs> yeah, the, the sooner we move on from age, the better this podcast will become. 
because you might find the guest leaving fairly promptly. Oh, I mean, you talked about your boxing skills. I don't, I don't fancy getting on the left side of your feet. But I mean, uh, obviously, you were talking about the the the, the world getting smaller for uh, for Kevin Paul, and there was almost an air of excitement in your voice and the fact that in two years you've made such strides. On the flip side, how do you think Kevin's feeling about that? I hope that I've given him some sleepless nights. I hope that I've caused him a lot of inconvenience. Um, that, and if I have, they are, of course, only small, very, very small victories. Um, my, my aim remains the same as it was on the 29th of April 2019, and that is to see him in handcuffs and then appear in a court. And that, that will happen. It will happen at some stage. Unfortunately, I think COVID has benefited him hugely because I'm pretty sure that had we not gone into lockdown on the 23rd of March, 2020, he'd have been captured around about that time. Yeah. Um, which is which is unfortunate. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to be deterred. I'm a very sort of determined kind of bloke. I've got the energy and enthusiasm for work that I had when I was half my age. And I live my life by the C word, steady, commitment, right? Commitment. That's what it's all about. If you're going to do something, anything in your life, commit to it or, or don't bother. Yeah. Please, whatever that may be, be it a hobby, your work, a relationship, either commit or just don't get involved because then you're wasting your time and everybody else's time. And I'm very, very committed to this hunt for Kevin Powell. And, and I can't wait to be back in the great city of Liverpool next week. Well, I mean, the, the, the determination that you've had over the two years, I mean, is, is probably the standout kind of factor uh, in the way that you've really buried yourself into this case. And especially over lockdown, you talked about how, um, you know, you were writing the book essentially when everyone else was was twiddling their thumbs and thinking of things to do. You were very committed to the case and, and things flew past you. Um, how has that maybe affected your life in terms of how much you've focused entirely on this case and maybe not focused on other things? Yeah, they're, they're... <sighs> it's Liam and Lucy. It comes back to that again. You know, mm. and I make no apology for that. It's 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 a, it's all about Liam and Lucy. And there have been times when I I have given time up to to some other projects, not major projects, um, but you know, a, a a half a day's work might come in here, or a half a day's work might come in there. And of course, that's all very helpful um, in terms of perhaps you know getting a, a small check or something to put in the bank, but this dominates my life. Yeah. Last month, I, I took part in a charity fundraiser, which I called A Million Steps in May. And I set myself that task to walk a million steps in the 31 days of May. That equates to 32,259 steps every day. Now, if anybody counts their steps, they will know just what a stretch that is. And as I've already said, I'm 61. And it's fair to say I don't have the lifestyle habits of an Olympic athlete. So that was a real challenge. And I did it for a charity called Support After Murder and Manslaughter. Mm -hmm. Because through hunting Kevin Powell, 
and through my other books, I have spent a lot of time with people that have lost a loved one to murder. And I know of the catastrophic effects that can have on people's lives. It causes a tsunami of repercussions that spread very, very far and wide crimes such as Liam and Lucy's murders do. So that month was largely dedicated to putting one foot in front of the other, mm -hmm. doing 15 and a half miles walking every single day. And it really was a stretch and a challenge physically. Um, but I did it and raised over 12,000 pounds for, they're called SAM, S-A-M-M, Support After Murder and Manslaughter. Everything I do is, is, is about victims because yeah. they get such a raw deal so often. Not only do they lose a loved one, and I think we can all kind of try and imagine how catastrophic that must be, whether it's a partner, a child, a friend, a work colleague, to lose a loved one to murder is horrific. And then, of course, there is the trauma, the bereavement. In some cases, they get a pretty raw deal at the hands of the criminal justice system. Dealing with the police can be very difficult. The Crown Prosecution Service, if somebody gets arrested and charged, the court system, all these things can be very difficult. If nobody is arrested and convicted, that longing for justice can be something very difficult to deal with. And, and I could go on and on and on. But Sam, support after murder and manslaughter, do brilliant, brilliant work. And by walking a million steps in May, I raised over £12,000 for them. Which is and I'm really delighted with that. And so are the charity. Um, just as an aside, if anybody's enjoyed this podcast and they think it's worth a quid, then please go to givepenny.com, search A Million Steps in May, and you can donate a pound or two. And I guarantee you, all of that money will go to helping people in their very darkest hours. Um, I'll include that all in the bottom as well. Thank you. Um, Sam can't make public a lot of what they do because it is confidential. Mm -hmm. For no other reason other than bereaved people often want the help that they get to remain confidential. And I think we can all understand that. Yeah. Um, so it can be a stretch for them to raise money. So, yeah, if this was worth a pound, you know, then please well, yeah, go I over to givepenny.com. I hope it that would be wonderful. In any way it can. Because, I mean, it, it often, I, the, the, the cliche is often that the the victim the family of, of the victim of a murder or or something like that is often the one who's perhaps serving the life sentence really because you know there's no redemption it is so hard to to climb over that hill and and forgive someone or it, it really weighs weighs on you uh so yeah i think it's a fantastic cause what i'll try and do i'll try and wrap up because i know you we, we've been talking for so long <laughs> i've been lost in in the stories and, and your takes on things peter um what i do want to ask obviously to come back to kevin paul because i do want to end on kevin paul and keep his name and his face very much you know uh there you go very much resonating in the minds of people who are maybe listening to this who haven't heard of kevin paul uh and just to really paint the picture of the, the man he is, I mean, this man, you know, is a serial, alleged serial murderer in the fact that he, he has allegedly been a part of two 
murders of two, you know, very innocent people. Um, and, and in the podcast, there's talks about how he's treated ex-girlfriends and, and his mindset. And I know you, you have your your crack team of of experts who uh, help you. Would you class Kevin Paul as a psychopath? I know it's a word that gets overused, but in terms of his mentality and movements and the things that he's done and then jetted off to, to Spain to essentially have a holiday almost immediately after the, the murders... Would you class him as a as a psychopath or, or with psychopathic tendencies? Well, I'm 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 no psychologist or criminologist, so I will leave that up to the experts that contribute both to the book and, and our podcast. They, their words can be heard and read quite clearly there. What I will say is that based on a lot of witness testimony from people that knew him, I think it is fair to say um, he's a smart guy. He's very intelligent. Clearly, he's evaded law enforcement for over 16 years, so he's no fool. But if the testimony that I have been told is true, and I have no reason to doubt the veracity of it, then he is a thoroughly, thoroughly unpleasant person. But those who will make judgments on Kevin Powell and his actions, should I say, will hopefully be a jury that will make their decision based on the evidence that they hear. Yeah. And that, of course, will be a matter for the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. Um, my hunt for Kevin Powell is certainly not a personal thing, mm -hmm. because, of course, I've never met him. It's merely a professional challenge that I've set myself, because I firmly believe that the natural order of things is that people accused of crime need to answer the allegations made against them. And bring about justice for the people who have been affected by him. Just yeah, to finish off then, Peter, yeah. uh, and, I'll, and then I'll let you go. But I mean, the I think the thing that was prominent on your early leaflets was, you know, Kevin Paul, I'm coming for you. That he probably, this man is well-connected. He's probably funded by criminal means uh, and to keep going. Um, and he probably has people who are looking across all media to figure out what you're saying about him. So if that's the case, and one of Kevin Paul's cronies might be watching this, and you had a, uh, had a message to him, or you could stand on a soapbox and, and put out a message to him, what would you say to Kevin Paul right now? Okay, they'll probably laugh at this, because those who are harbouring him and funding him, um, shall we say, are involved in the most serious of criminality, which is extremely lucrative. Um, however, what I will say is that his capture is inevitable. He will be caught. And whilst I've had my issues with Merseyside Police over the last couple of years, one thing that they've done recently um, is that they've changed their position with regards to the £20,000 reward that is on offer for his capture. That 20 grand used to be based on two conditions, that he was captured and that he was convicted. Now, I've argued long and hard with Merseyside Police that those conditions were unfair. And I lay out my reasons for that in the book quite clearly. Fortunately, Merseyside Police have reconsidered their position and that £20,000 is now 
on offer for the information that leads only, I say only, that leads to his arrest. The conviction element of it has been ditched. So one phone call either to Crime Stoppers, okay, if you want to remain anonymous, that's, that's easy. That's just pick up the phone and ring Crime Stoppers. 0800 555 You don't have to give your name, where you're from, anything like that. One phone call, 20 grand in your bin, tax-free. I know 20 grand to many villains is like small cash, you know, small fright, small change rather. I'll get there in the end. But, however, if you don't make that phone call, he's going to get captured and you won't get that 20 grand. So surely you might as well cash in now while you can. It's the, the whole being subject to his conviction has been ditched and fair play to Merseyside police for that. Very, very good. It's just for the information that leads to his capture. And it's going to happen. So why not cash in for 20 grand while you can? I can hear some of them laughing at me now as they <laughs> listen, you know. But, and then, of course, if you're involved in harbouring him or funding him, you might well find yourselves staring down the barrel of a lengthy jail term for exactly those kind of crimes, harbouring an offender. Money laundering, who knows? I suspect those who are captured with him will be subject to some form of investigation. Oh, God, yeah. Well, I'm... By me, if not anybody else. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah these, it, it is only a matter of time, really, and, and you, can, you can see that in both Manhunt, uh, Hunting Britain's Most Wanted Murderer and Manhunt, uh, the book, and then Manhunt Finding Kevin Paul on BBC Sounds. Uh, that show the investigation. But I mean, uh, Peter, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak to me. I really do appreciate it. And for you to not only talking about Kevin Paul, but also sharing your your stories with me. Yeah, I, I'm it, massively it, grateful. It, thank you, Harry. It's been, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you to everybody for listening or watching. And um, I don't know if you have guests on for a part two. But at my age, I've got loads of stories to tell. Oh, God, I would, I'd love that. I think a lot of people would as well. I'd love a Peter Blacksley part two.